Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas took sides against these Judeans and and argued strongly against their position. The church at Antioch appointed Paul and Barnabas and several others from Antioch to go up to Jerusalem to set this question before the elders and the apostles. The church sent this delegation on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling stories about the conversion of the Gentiles to everyone. Their reports thrilled the brothers and sisters. They arrived in Jerusalem. The church, the apostles, and the elders all welcomed them. They gave a full report of what God had accomplished through their activity. Some believers from among the Pharisees stood up and claimed, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required to keep the law from Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After much debate, Peter stood and addressed them. Fellow believers, you know that early on, God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elle, for that reading. My name is Daniel Long, pastor here at Grace. If this is your first time, grateful that you're here to worship with us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the word this morning, Acts 15. So let's pray together. God, you are, you're the one who makes this possible because of what you've done through your son, Jesus. You're the one who came to us. You're the one who entered into our story, into our experience. You're the one who, through Jesus, invites us to come and follow you. You're the one who gave up yourself completely and entirely on the cross. You're the one who, through Jesus, defeated the powers of death. You're the one who empowered the church by pouring out your spirit, by calling a people together. This is all about you, and somehow we're involved, and it's a gift. I ask that you would speak to your people this morning, that you would speak to me, to us, to my brothers, to my sisters, to my family. I pray that you would have a word that invites and a word that challenges, and that we would have the openness to receive both. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in in the book of Acts, um, and which tells the story, the actions, the acts of the apostles, the beginning of God's work in and through the church when God empowered the church through the Spirit, unleashing the Spirit upon a people which brought them together 
and then sends them out to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's the story of the gospel expanding and moving all the way up to now to where we find ourselves. We're actually moving into the second half of the book of Acts. So the first half was really um, taking, focusing on these apostles named Peter. And as the church was beginning, we're moving into a period where the focus is going to be turning onto the apostle Paul. And we know a lot about Christianity and early Christianity and what the issues and things were because of this apostle Paul. And we see um, in this particular moment, kind of leading up to Acts 15, the gospel is beginning to go into the Gentiles, to this, to this area, this region of Antioch, where people who are not and have not been part of the story are all of a sudden responding to the gospel and are now being included. And it actually creates a problem. It creates a problem for the church. And so we're going to look at Acts 15, and I suppose here's the good news of this text this morning, is that the Spirit of God holds a community together amid conflict. That's the good news. The Spirit of God holds community together amid conflict. Now here's the problem, as it's said in Acts 15. So again, the gospel is moving into the region of Antioch. These Gentiles are being converted. And it says in Acts 15:1, if you're there, you can read along with me. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, now this is a big problem. This is a problem because all of a sudden there are people who are responding to the gospel where these Jewish Christians think something needs to be done with them, with their body in particular, in order to be able to have fellowship with this broader community. They need to be circumcised. Now, this is not a problem that we feel in the same way, but certainly there are different types of identity markers that we have in our culture that we prop up that say, you cannot have fellowship with me unless you or unless you don't X, would fill in the blank, whatever those might be. Now, the interesting thing about this, right, is that the story of the gospel is new for this community of people. And I think when we read Acts, when I read Acts, I forget that this people is actually trying to figure itself out. God has done something radical and crazy beyond their wildest expectations, and they're actually trying to figure out their theology in the moment and in the process. That should give us hope. This is no surprise to anybody, but the church has never been in this moment, our current moment. One of my favorite ideas about how to think about Christianity, or at least the, the story of scripture, is thinking of it as almost like a five-act play, five or six-act play. And I've said this before, it might not be new to any of you. We have the first act, creation. We have the second act, the fall, then Israel, and then Jesus, and then the church. These five acts, we find ourselves in this, this time of, of when Jesus, when God came to us in Jesus and the church is created and we're living and moving toward the final act when God restores all things. But here's the thing, we don't have the lines, we don't have the stage directions for living in this fifth act. You do not have them. We have a story in which we are all actors in this play. Imagine that Christianity and what we're doing is something like acting out in a play. 
We have the story. We know the story that we are inhabiting. We know what's come before us. We know what's going to come again. And we are left, in a way, trying to improvise as best we can in the midst of this time and in this place. Now, what that means is there's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be differences of how we actually work this out. And if that sounds like something that, that hits on where you find yourself in terms of the Christian story in present, then I think because that's where we're finding ourselves now. But if you think about the larger church of where it finds itself, oh my word, it is unbelievably in the midst of some conflict. The church is trying to figure out how to navigate these crazy waters that we find ourselves in, and we have the story of what's happened before us, we know what's going to come, and we're trying to work it out as best we can where we find ourselves in the moment, and it is hard work, and it creates conflict. And so then what does it look like to live amidst conflict? Well, on the one hand, like I heard stories, or I heard somebody this week, somebody from our community, a friend, he said, Pastor, is, is our church okay? He asked me that question. Like, is our church okay? What's this sense of this burden of feeling there's some sort of tension lurking beneath the surface of our church? Is our church okay? And I think he's hitting at both Grace Church, but I also think there's this sense of the larger church. Is the church okay? Is it going to make it through this moment that seems like it's full of such turmoil and tension? and uncertainty. I heard of another story of a friend, different church. She just said, I, I can't be a part of this church anymore. I don't even know if I wanna be a Christian. Like, all of this conflict, all of this political turmoil, I just don't know how to navigate it anymore. That's, that's grieving. We as a church, capital C, should be grieving. Because if the church cannot figure out how to deal with, by the Spirit, conflict, then we are absolutely done for. We gotta be an alternative community that's sort of, that, that, is, that is committed to finding its way through. And I actually think Acts 15 shows us some ways. When I was studying this, I thought, no, 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 I don't, I don't know about this text. This just seems like it is just too poignant. And it is. So we're going to, like I said, I already said the problem. Here is a community of Jewish Christians that are all of a sudden needing to respond to the work of God by the Spirit being empowered or empowering these Gentiles. And then, well, they need to be circumcised. Verse 2. But after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it's necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. 
So again, this sets up the problem, and this sets up one of the first postures that I think we're going to need. And I'm going to give you all four of the postures, that spirit-empowered postures, that helps this church navigate conflict. So here are the four. There's a sense of being open to God. There's an openness to God. There's a willingness to listen. There's a commitment to God's story. And then there's desire for fellowship. And I think those four things emerge out of the text. So we heard it read, we know that the apostles then begin to tell the stories of what God is doing. And this is where this sense of being open to God comes in. Now there's this, there's this need for the church to remember that this is God we're talking about and this is his church we're dealing with. If we think it isn't, then we will falter. We will fail. We will not be able to make it because all of a sudden we think the trust is put on ourselves. And if it, if it is up to us for this thing to make it, I'm sorry to say, I know my own heart, it ain't gonna work. But if it's up to the Spirit, the Spirit is committed to holding this thing together. But there are certain postures and practices that God's people can inhabit and work toward in order to, to participate in the way of the Spirit. And this first one is being open to God. You see, the apostles saw something happening and it was fundamentally shaking. The Gentiles were responding to the Spirit. They are then left to wonder what to do in response. This is category breaking. And I know it is hard for us to understand just how category breaking this is. God was working through Israel in order to be a blessing to the nations Jesus then comes as this Davidic king through whom God is bringing the world to reconciliation and now salvation is possible for all because of this person, Jesus, the true Israel. I mean, this is something that the Jews were not expecting and yet it's happening and they're left to respond. And they need to be open to this new thing God is doing. And this sense of openness to God's new activity, to this disruptive activity, comes by way of a few things. One is trust, again, that this is what God is up to. The second thing is a certain type of humility to being open to what God is doing. And as we go through this, just one thing is I was thinking about this text, reading through it, I thought, confessing to you, wow, this sounds really idealistic. Let's see, if, I, I wonder if this really could work out now in our times. And I thought, wow, what a lack of faith. And that reveals a sense of despair, not a living hope, which it talks about in 1 Peter that we are to have because Jesus Christ has in fact been raised from the dead. So if you think, oh, this would never work, then what is the point? But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a living hope. It can work. I really believe that. So being open to this new activity, to this new thing God is doing. And this openness then leads to a sense of being willing to listen. So verse six, the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he's made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Amen. The whole assembly kept silence. Again, and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So there's this posture of being open to God and his new activity and attending to it, trying to make sense of it, but then there's this willingness to listen to the testimony of these people who are experiencing this new thing. There's a willingness to listen to Paul and to Barnabas and their stories of how God is unleashing the Spirit onto the Gentiles. There's a willingness to listen to Peter and his own experience of what, uh, we, what Steve Porter talked about last week of God's ongoing revelation of what he's trying to say and what he's trying to do. There is a willingness to listen to the stories and experiences of others along with this openness to God's new and disruptive activity that participates in these postures of being open to the spirit amid conflict. And I guess that's one of my questions is how good are we at listening to the experience of others and how God is at work in other people's lives? How willing are we to believe that God is actually at work in other people who are different than we are and who are experiencing the world in a way different than we are? Is there a willingness to listen to other people? Because the culture says that we should not. We are being discipled to not listen to one another and to really not care about other people's experiences or stories. We can't because too much is at stake. What's at stake? Our own personal version of reality and conviction. And that's a lot, and I don't really want to give that up. That's something I hold on to. But we see here, because of God's disruptive activity, there's an attention being paid to it that's all of a sudden needing to create different questions to attend to but then there's also a willingness to listen to other people's experiences in the midst of it. And then the Spirit of God continues to work through this. But then the next thing, it's not just an openness to God, it's not just a willingness to listen, but it's also a commitment to God's story. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James, he replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who's been making these things known from long ago. So we, we have the testimony of these apostles, but then we have James going to Scripture. There's a commitment to understanding what is taking place in light of Scripture. What James does here is he quotes quite like creatively, mind you, because he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, 
which actually has some additions that the Hebrew Bible doesn't. So there's some creative interpretation that James has from Amos 9, 11 through 12, in which he's saying that here's a picture of the prophet Amos is painting of when the Davidic king will rule, and when that rule takes place, then it will be opened up so that all people might be able to proclaim, yes, he is in fact king. Well, we know who that Davidic king is. That is King Jesus. King Jesus has come. His kingdom has been established. Now that allows for the possibility of Gentiles being able to say, Jesus is king. Jesus is my Lord. So James here, with his interpretation, is saying, wait, okay, so we're, we're trying to attend to God's activity and what he's up to. We're also listening to the, to the apostles. Now let's go back to scripture and see what that says. Okay, well this seems to make sense. This coincides with God's trajectory of what he wants. Now this commitment to God's story suggests that there is a story larger than my own and your own and our own. This to me is fundamental because we are storied people. We are storied people and we cannot help but be living within a story. But which story are we living in? Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this. He says that people, and he says especially Americans, are people who believe they should have no story except the story they choose when they have no story. I'm gonna read it again. We have been shaped to be people who believe they should have no story except the story they choose when they have no story. So what is he saying? He's saying that we think we are people who have the opportunity to choose whatever story we want. That is actually what it means to be human. In his, in his view, that is what it means fundamentally to be American, is that we are unstoried and we get to choose whatever story we think is best for ourselves, which is, in fact, a story. But if we do not believe that we are storied people, and then we are then shaped by whatever story comes our way, then what we think we do is we then attach ourselves to whatever story we find most beautiful or we find most enticing or we think makes most sense of our experience. And all of a sudden, we become tribes. Because, oh, that story, that story is the one I want. And then people say, no, 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 I want that story. And then all of a sudden, here we are arguing about which story is best but we are Christians. We already have the most wonderful, beautiful story. That is the story that we have been given because of Jesus Christ. We do not get to choose the story. The story has chosen us because God in his infinite grace and mercy says come and follow me. But if we think we are people without a story, and then the greatest freedom and gift is to choose the story that we get and most want, then there is no hope. Because hope is found in the story that says, come and follow me. The story, the one who says that is the one who came and died and was raised again and unleashes a spirit upon a people. So here we see this community 
concerned with God's new activity, open and willing to listen, but also committed to God's story narrating their world, narrating their convictions. James continues in verse 19, therefore I've reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, which is beautiful. I mean, look at that movement. From, okay, God is doing something new. They went from these people need to be circumcised to, okay, wait, God is doing something new. Let's listen to the testimony and experiences of others. Okay, let's, let's, let's put that in line with scripture. And then I've reached a decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses had had those who proclaimed him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, wait. So you are saying they don't have to be circumcised, but there are still things they should do. That seems like legalism. It's not legalism. I mean, again, this community is trying to figure out how to have fellowship with each other. One of the most like, important tribal identity markers of what it meant to be the people of God was to be circumcised. There were also ways that they would be together and it was how they ate and they slept together. So this community is saying, okay, yes, it seems good that people, because of what God is doing, they don't have to be circumcised, but we still have to figure out how to be in fellowship together. We still have to figure out how to eat together. How are we going to do that? And that's why we still have these things that the community should be doing for the sake of the community to be in fellowship with each other. Abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses had had those who proclaim him, for he's been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it continues in verse 22, then the apostles and the elders with the consent of the whole church. Notice that language. It's not just these elders and apostles making decisions, but they're actually doing it with the church. The church then sends out people to then say to the Gentiles what they've come up with. They decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of the Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that certain purses, persons who've gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we've decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you. Notice the care that the church is taking for the sake of the fellowship. They choose who they think will best represent them to these Gentiles and who the Gentiles will hear best from. We sent them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. 
And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so the apostles go and they read this and there's joy and there's excitement because the Gentiles can now be part of or recognized as part of this community. And they actually don't complain or they don't argue about these other things that they have been asked to do in order to participate in the fellowship because the fellowship matters to them. They want to be part of it. So the desire for fellowship is so strong on both parties. One, a desire to acknowledge that these new people that God is wanting to let in can be let in, and so we are not going to require a certain type of identity marker so that they can participate. But then on the part of the others who will say, but I will do and participate in this way for the sake of fellowship. I mean, this is complex and wonderful stuff. If this is not 2021, I do not know what is. And this is from the Holy Spirit wanting to maintain fellowship amid some possibility for destruction and division and absolute and complete isolation. God's got us. The Holy Spirit's working. So then what are the considerations? I mean, this one's obvious, but conflict isn't anything new. It's nothing new in the church. Here we are, right here, a community trying to figure out how to live in the fifth act in light of what God has done. It's gonna create conflict. Sometimes my wife and I, we talk with, with um, couples who wanna be married, and we ask them, like, how do you fight? And the most worrying thing is when somebody says, we don't. I'm like, oh, Lord. Well, go have at least 30, and then come back and talk to us, and then we'll actually have something to work with. Because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be in community with each other. It is actually impossible unless the Spirit of God is moving and working and holding us together. It is just hard work. And because it's hard, and because we're all storied people, storied in different ways, wanting to be submissive to the ultimate story, it is going to create conflict, and we're going to have to figure it out, and we're going to have to work out. And so one of the things to consider because of this conflict is, is there an openness to God in the conflict? Are we open to the work of, that God has amid our conflict. This is coming from a guy who wants to run away from conflict. My marriage, relationship, as fast as I possibly can. But it is unavoidable. That's what I've learned after 15 years. Conflict's unavoidable. But is there an openness to God in the midst of that conflict? Is it possible that this is part of God's disruptive activity and that there is some way in which God is wanting to reveal himself or others in new ways through it. Where is God in the conflict? Have you lost hope in the church? Have you lost hope in the church? That to me says there's not a lot of openness to God in the conflict. If you're despairing, 
I want to tell you that this is God's church. (laughs) And he gave his life for it. And he's empowered it with his spirit. And he wants to do something with it. That's a living hope. Don't despair. We do not need to despair. Second thing is, is there a willingness to listen? See, again, openness suggests a certain type of trust in God and his work, which then I think makes possible a willingness to listen to other people's experiences, to other people's um, participation in the church. And here's a word for you. Are you humble enough to listen? That's my question. Are you, am I humble enough to listen? Pride is going to be the great destroyer of our faith and our souls, and certainly, ultimately, I think it could be. It won't be because it's God's church, but it threatens the church constantly. I mean, that's, that, is like, that is a constant theme throughout all of Scripture, this sense of pride. So are you humble? Like, think about that. Think about that for your life. Do you have humility? Do people think you have humility? Go ask people who are close to you. Do you think I'm humble? How is my humility? Give me a grade. Honestly, ask that question. So is there a willingness to listen? Whose voices and experiences have you determined no longer matter? That's an easy question to feel convicted by. I mean, there are people's voices and stories we think no longer matter. But if we trust that people are made in the image of God, then there has got to be hope and willingness to listen to how God is wanting to say and work through other people. Third question, is there a commitment to making sense of reality in light of God's story? I have a lot to say in this section. Is there a commitment to making sense of reality in light of God's story? What story is most important to you and to me and why? What story is actually most important to us? And see, here's a good indication of what story might be most important to you. The language you use. The language you use, I think, has something to say about the story that you find most important. And so much of our discourse has been drained of imagination. Vax, anti-vax, mask, no mask, yes, no on recall. I mean, is that all we have to talk about? Clearly, that cannot be true. Our freedom, our personal rights, social responsibility, whatever the language is that we find ourselves using so much, that pretty, that I think it indicates what story we find most important. But what about words like, or phrases like, Incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Sin, grace, forgiveness, repentance, confession. Take up your cross and follow me. Wisdom, love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Brother, sister, certainly that language is so much more imaginative. So much more beautiful. Let's figure out how to use it well. The last question. How strong is your desire for fellowship and maintaining connection? How strong is your desire for fellowship and maintaining connection? So here's a question. What identity markers are you willing to give up in order that some might be able to have fellowship with you? We all have this Jesus plus thing that we're trying to navigate, right? Peter said it best. His story is like, remember, we've all been saved by grace. And we want to say yes, but it's just so easy to do. I want to do it. I have a list in my brain that would fill in the blank, Jesus plus this. But what am I willing to give up in order to allow other people to participate in fellowship. And then we, saw, we see also in this text, like what freedoms are you willing to hold loosely for the sake of fellowship? What freedoms are you willing to hold loosely for the sake of fellowship? Because there are two things going on. I'm gonna come back to this again. The fellowship is maintained because a group of people are saying, okay, yes, that is, not a tr- that is not an ident- identity marker that we're going to hold over you. But we also see that there are considerations for the fellowship in order for people to be together. The Gentiles, which we see later, as, as the more, less, fewer and fewer Jews are part of the community, all of a sudden these food laws, they don't matter because it's not a fellowship conversation. It's not an issue. But because it is here in this moment, it does matter. It actually matters that the Gentiles aren't just like, oh, well, wait, I can do whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. No, you can't, actually. Here's what we're asking of you. And so I think that there's this part of it. We're not going to hold these identity markers over you to exclude you from fellowship, but there are also things we're going to ask you to do so that we can participate in fellowship together well. And so what identity markers are you willing to give, a, give up for the sake of making room for others? And what freedoms are you willing to hold loosely for the sake of fellowship? I'm gonna take a risk and I'm gonna suggest some freedoms I think we could give up for the sake of fellowship. I think that we might consider giving up the freedom of how we use our social media. I would consider that we, for the sake of our fellowship, would actually think about how we use our various social media accounts. That is something I would consider. What you say on it, how you respond, for the sake of our fellowship. There are other freedoms that I think that we would be good to give up for the sake of the fellowship. One thing that we've done, which we've all done together, which I appreciate, is masks. Nobody likes them. I don't like them. 
But this is one thing we've been able to give up together so that we might have fellowship. Thank you. But what are some other, other things that God is calling you to give up for the sake of fellowship? What are those other markers you have in your mind that exclude people from fellowship? I want to close with two passages from John. John 13, 35, 33 says this. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. Do not forget this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our witness matters. And according to Jesus, our greatest form of witness is how we love one another. John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Like Jesus has shown us the way. The Spirit of God has given us the power. God is at work in us and among us and through us even in these times when it feels like it seems impossible. As I said at the beginning, this is the good news is the Spirit of God holds community together amid conflict. That's the good news. That's what God is up to. That's what God is doing. And may we as his people participate in that spirit be walking in that way so that we might bear witness to the world that we are his disciples, that Jesus, in fact, has come, that he has lived, that he has died, that he has been raised again, that there is a living hope that is better than every other hope. There is a story that is more true and better and beautiful than any other story. But that is the good news. That is the gospel. And somehow we're taken up into it. And thanks be to God that that is true. True. 